It's time to come clean about Dirty Harry. Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute. This is your host, John, back with another episode. Today we're finally going to have an in-depth discussion of that perennial accusation of Dirty Harry being fascist. Uh, Now that the podcast is coming to an end, I was almost tempted to skirt the issue directly, thinking that we've addressed the subject in a small way over the 100 episodes, but it's definitely a big topic, uh, and I thought it deserved its own discrete episode. So what you're about to hear is me debating myself, and hopefully we can get to the bottom of it. But before we start, here's a little more from our good friends at Sneaky Dragon Podcast. Check it out. You're police, you shouldn't be swearing at all. Pauline Kale hated it, of course. Called it fascist. But, uh... <laughs> not, not wrong. No, not... no. It's, it's... So is, is it fascist if? Yeah, because fascist, you have to then have the government be behind it. You have to have the organization behind it. And he's kind of a rogue agent yeah, in the government. Yeah, yeah. The government is constantly saying to him, "Don't do this." But I think Don't... The, I think the movie itself is promoting the idea that police should be able to act like Dirty Harry. Mm. Without with with less uh con- less t- less controlling their actions and more free to to crush criminals' legs to get information from them, you know. And criminals are just uh, maniacs; they're just complete maniacs. Which, like of course, in they... the in the movie, it seems fine because you know he's buried a, a girl, and Dirty Harry wants to know where she is, and he tortures this guy to get that information. So you're right. like, you're like, well, you know, I understand because he wants to save this girl. But it's such it's an extreme example. Of course, it seems reasonable then, but is it reasonable for a policeman to then torture someone to find out where the money is that they stole? Well, no. But, you know, once you say yes to one, you know, you open a door to all kinds of things. And- well, the other problem with that is when when they first get the evidence that the girl has been kidnapped, yeah. you know, they get the tooth and like, oh, boy, like they just go so far with like uh, this happened to her and this happened to her. And then yeah. here's her tooth. It's like. Okay, enough. God damn. All right, but then uh, Dirty Harry says, uh, "You know she's dead, right?" And like, oh, you should be. That should be it. Like, Dirty Harry should be the only one who's not rushing at this point. Yeah. Because Dirty Harry should be like, "No, she's dead." Yeah. Like, I know this guy. I know this guy. He is a, a piece of crap, and he's uh, he's he's killed her. There's no reason for me to run from thing to thing. Yeah. And that's how I'm different from the other cops because I understand the mentality of this scumbag. But then he's like, where is she? And like, well, he thinks that she's still alive. So he doesn't believe the thing that he said before. It's like, well, all right. Now you're just. Well, you're just, he's just going. He is. He's being safe. I get it. Yeah. I mean, he's but just because he sh- this guy, he's, he's you know, like, I could, let's say he's probably 90 percent certain that she's dead. But this guy's saying she isn't. Where is she then? So it's just weird with a guy who's such a straight shooter who's like. You know, nah, she's dead. I'm just telling you, she's dead. <laughs> it's like, okay, then let's go with that. Let's go with that idea. So if he thinks 
she's dead. What? How does he? How does he now run things? But yeah, but, like, but he still has to. He still has to act as if she isn't dead. But that's the problem. Is like you've got a guy who wants to play games. Yeah. And Derby Harry should be the guy who just goes, "I ain't playing your game." You know, you got to run from here to here and do this, and then wear this hat. No. <laughs> I'm going to shoot you. You can't shoot me. I got rights. Blam. Hey, you shot me. But I got rights. Yeah, she's dead. I don't care about that. I'm just taking you in. Like, oh, okay. And it's like, he's a guy who doesn't uh, doesn't go for that bullshit. Yeah. That would make sense. But instead, he's, you know. Well, I mean, it makes sense. But at the same time, you don't want to be the guy who's like, she's dead. And then I arrested the guy. Well, what about the girl? She's dead. And then it turns out, well, she wasn't dead. But now she is. Oops. But it's... Is Harry wrong about anything through this whole thing? Except, <laughs> except of course, for trusting the police department. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the police department. It's time for Deconstructing Dirty Harry. The film Dirty Harry is not, quote, structurally complex. It simply recounts a duel to the death between a psychopathic serial killer and a policeman. And yet, since its very release in 1971, many critics have levelled the epithet fascist against it. Others, while not going so far as to employ the F label, have ruminated on how irresponsible the film is and worried whether it sends a dog whistle to a section of the community that would countenance extra-legal methods to combat crime. Well then, is Dirty Harry a fascist film? Or at the very least, a film about a fascist cop? And does this distinction ultimately matter? It is just a movie, of course. The font setter helpfully put the word dirty in brown during the opening credits, alerting us to the moral ambivalence about to unfold. Perhaps someone summarised the movie best by saying, if you take it as a mythical solution to a popular desire, then it's not fascist. If you take it as a real picture of how police work ought to be, then it definitely is fascist. The vast majority of people play video games like Grand Theft Auto as a bit of escapist role-playing without incident, not as an endorsement of how they see the world the reasonable viewer would appreciate the distinction. Let's start off simply describing what takes place during the movie. Harry Callahan is a lonely cop who lives for his job, apprehends and kills a foul killer who is attempting to extort ransom from the city of San Francisco. Everyone is attempting to thwart Callahan's instincts, which tell him that Scorpio is a depraved deviant who cannot be bought off. If detecting crime and bringing criminals before the justice system is the name of the game, then Harry is a success. If not, he's a patent loser. Fascists employ dirty methods in their ascent to power, resort to unethical operations, and employ fanatical violence outside normal conventional limits. Is this not a description of Harry? Of course, liberal democracies also do the aforementioned when required, too. Waterboarding and extraordinary rendition, anyone? The question remains, is Callahan's disdain of his own justice system, with its checks and balances, so severe that he can be called 
a jack-booted functionary of an alternative state in waiting? The central core of fascism is not an ideology, but a faith. A faith that the law can be pushed aside when needed without too drastic a consequence. Often a strong man's saviour, or the intuition of a leader, is substituted for the system of neutrality embedded in the liberal order. Of course, in everyday life, intuition can be a desirable quality. In the public sphere, however, it can be very dangerous. Take Qui-Gon Jinn in The Phantom Menace, for instance. This character entertains no doubts in the good of the Force. He trusts this invisible, binding and penetrating Force. How phallic. Not the rules laid down by any Jedi Council. Read The Supreme Court. He is disdainful of his partner Obi-Wan, who naively believes in the established order. But unlike Harry, Qui-Gon Jinn is not a public official. We would not tolerate his instincts in the direct employ of the Republican Senate. He is subjected to the law like anyone else. Harry makes it known to the audience that society is heading in the wrong direction. Look how he judges the seedy flotsam and jetsam of North Beach, and in his mind the system needs to adjust to subvert it. Let's hope he keeps his opinions to himself and pray society has not made him the final arbiter of its morals. Some say we must give the police a little leeway to follow their hunches, at least on an investigative level, without the constant cry of profiling. But as much leeway as Harry hints at? No thanks. Newsweek wrote that the film's script ennobles a ruthless vigilante cop who expresses contempt for the courts. Every word of that sentence undoubtedly rings true. With a strong question mark next to ennobles, does the film really anoint Harry for sainthood? Or is it that simply we want Scorpio who is as guilty as sin to be put away, or worse. At the film's end, do we really want to see the San Francisco Police Department suddenly full of nothing but Harry Callahan's multiplicity style? Sure, Eastwood may be better looking than Michael Keaton, but is that the world we really want for ourselves? Roger Ebert wasn't the only one frustrated with the film's stacked deck in favour of Harry's methods. Rennie Santoni, who played Chico, observed we were shown the dark side of the villain to such a degree we were willing for Harry to totally bypass the court system. In Pauline Kael's words, Scorpio is pure evil, sniper, rapist, kidnapper, torturer, a monster who wears a peace symbol standing for everything the audience fears and loathes. When we know for a certain he is the guy, then it's hard not to be seduced by Harry's methods. We know quantifiably, without doubt, that Scorpio is the shooter of the girl in the pool, the murderer of Officer Collins, the brutalizer of Harry, and the man who put a bullet into Chico's ribs. We know that he, at the very least, knew the location of Anne Mary Deacon's body to divulge to Harry at the stadium. The law, of course, says we can't know that 
or at least we can't have access to evidence that demonstrates it. Maybe the actual kidnapper was a good friend of Scorpio's. Or Scorpio overheard the stadium groundsman mentioning the location. The Lord demands every crime, every element of it, is reviewed soberly. These laws don't have to justify themselves. Psychic, don't cut it. Indeed. It's hard to disagree with Kale's assessment of the film being primitive and dreamlike, with fairy tale appeal. Some think that that is the most compelling thing about the movie. Her talk of Harry being presented as a Camelot cop might stretch a little thin, were it not for a hero shot of exactly that, Harry jumping down from a trestle bridge onto a school bus like an avenging angel. Even Richard Schickel, Eastwood's authorised biographer, accepts that Harry's arrest of Scorpio is sadistic, and how extremely rare it was in 1971 for a fictional hero to be seen torturing to exact information. Dirty Harry was released at a time of frequent reporting of police overstepping their authority. Any one individual can go rogue without condemning the whole system. The problem lies in the film portraying the police and municipal authorities as a helpless group of unrealistic liberals who cannot rein in Harry nor protect a city under siege. They can't control Scorpio, let alone old bold Callahan. They are presented as a near-failed state. That this is not a liberal film is not argued by anybody. But is it true that every frame votes Nixon? Andy Robinson revealed his friends back east thought he had sold out for appearing in the movie. Richard Nixon had recently been elected president on a law and order platform appealing to the silent majority's backlash against the general permissiveness of the age of Aquarius and protest. The movie works hard to make San Francisco a grubby fleshpot of the Republican imagination, Harry lightly scowls at the kooky crackpots he encounters all over town. Quote, It was easy enough to extrapolate from Harry's bluntly expressed attitudes a whole range of unspoken opinions, making him into a generalised symbol of much that was hatefully illiberal in American life at that time. End quote. For some... The movie seemed to be suggesting the only way to make America great again was old-fashioned enforcement of laws and to wind back liberalism in an order to eradicate the monsters that soft laws protect. Eastwood himself downplayed this political interpretation at the time of the film's release, saying the story concerned just one man's frustration with red tape. Yet subsequently down the years, our star has tried to have it both ways by evoking the undue focus on suspects' rights and also saying it was just about an obsessive cop. 1971 was, of course, almost 50 years ago, a time when police union budgets were spread thin, before police were asked to be near social workers and before the broken windows policing of light misdemeanours. Over time, 
That'll be the day, Harry chuckles. And what was the director's intention? Don Siegel was, if anything, a lefty, having directed some gritty crime B-pictures on social themes, including Riot in Cell Block C and the classic Invasion of the Body Snatchers, an allegory on how the silent majority was self-perpetuating and conformist. And yet Siegel himself thought Dirty Harry was just a good detective story too, or so he said. I don't make political films, but if you make a film that's safe, you're in trouble. What my liberal friends did not grasp was that the cop was just as evil in his way as the sniper. Again, does that intention come across, though? Is Harry's nihilistic 44 speech, the cavalier way he's indifferent to the suicide's plight, is this evidence of his latent psychopathy or just cute cinematic fun? All fascists are lunatics, but not all lunatics are fascist. Maybe Harry is merely a lunatic. Inspector 44 may be an actual pod person of Siegel's earlier film, Devoid of Emotion. We don't see where Harry lives in the first movie, and when we do in the sequel, it seems he lives the same skeletal existence Scorpio does. And maybe he wants to replicate this order in society at large. Take the first Mad Max film. Police are similar to Harry, trying to maintain order while society is disintegrating around them. Max's fellow cops have mostly lost their nerve, resorted to perving at naked women through gun scopes. Like 1960s San Francisco, Max's world is a society where respect of the establishment is at an all-time low The hero loses his family in a motor accident like Harry, and he becomes a nihilistic shell. In sequels, he is a man reduced to an instinct, haunted by those he could not protect. Don Siegel said he did not want us to eulogise Harry. Detractors of the movie laugh at this, saying, The film tries to turn the pathologies of a man into virtues that civilization supposedly needs in order to endure. This is not a new dynamic. Noir films featured bad, good guys all the time. If Scorpio is in some ways a personification of the darker side of Callahan, then this may even explain why the policeman's pursuit of Scorpio is so intense. Scorpio likes to leave cryptic notes and send the authorities on wild goose chases, just like Callahan likes to play a life or death how many bullets left in the chamber of my 44 game, no less a sadistic psychotic ritual. Everyone's talking about fascism, shagism, dragism, madism, ragism, tagism, thisism, thatism, ism, 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 John Lennon sang. On the face of it, Harry has no isms just his own undeniable code. He either lets most of his assailants choose their final fate, Scorpio, or he lets them go, Alice, Hot Mary's Neighbourhood Watch, Albert Popwell. His first option is not always violence, which would be the fascist way. Harry is trying his best. The system is a constant thorn in his side. Soon even the incorruptible won't put themselves on the line anymore, Look how Chico's idealism erodes after one horrible back step.
Dirty Harry was not the only film of the era to feature hard-nosed cops. The French Connection features a trigger-happy detective who resorts to torture, yet the film didn't attract nearly as much opprobrium as Dirty Harry did. Maybe this is because the film is based on a real story, whereas Harry is a fantasy about how to dispatch a cartoon killer. Dirty Harry is a Miranda film about ethics. The French Connection is a police procedure about investigating a large crime. Dirty Harry is an emotional film. The French Connection is a dramatic cat-and-mouse crime caper. So, is Dirty Harry fascist? Well, in the words of that great moral relativist, the Honourable Reverend Lovejoy, short answer yes with an if, long answer no with the but. Dirty Harry is not fascist. Or is he? Dirty Harry is not fascist. He's just a bad cop. So sue him. Yes, you almost certainly can. Variety magazine called Dirty Harry a specious, phony glorification of police brutality. You may have to look specious up in the dictionary. Specious means superficially plausible, but actually highly unlikely. That is the entire film in one word. In reality, San Francisco police would have nabbed Scorpio for something after Anne Mary Deacon's body was discovered. He wouldn't just be allowed back into some Chinatown children's playground. But that's just the nature of storytelling. Yes, all the investigation takes place off camera. The number crunching, the helicopter patrols, the background checks on gun nuts. It has to. That stuff is just not cinematic. It constitutes, in Siegel's words, dead footage. There might very well be an inquiry into Harry's actions during the bank robbery. We just don't get to see it. Does the movie glorify Harry? Not really. Harry is too pathetic to be a Superman. He's not a fascist demagogue, simply someone the viewer can root for, and God knows the 70s audiences needed someone. Yes, cheer him on we do, not because he's a third-rate Mussolini thirsty for power, but because the system seems so unresponsive to injustice and only he seems capable of delivering it in the moment. Okay, maybe Harry has a quote, painfully bottled up capacity for violence, but the film doesn't want us to be complicit with it. Take the inspector's torture of Scorpio at the football stadium. The music becomes atonal, the camera shakes, and the visuals get all foggy. Harry's metaphoric stepping over the line is even forced down our throat with the inclusion of the chalked football lines that he stomps over. It's hard to imagine anybody cheering at this scene, even back in 1971. It's pretty intense. Harry doesn't believe in fascism. He doesn't even wear a uniform. Come to think of it, why is everyone so shabbily dressed? Maybe it was just the 70s, but everyone looks like they've just woken up. Goebbels would have been appalled. This would not have done for the propaganda reels. Our Hirschut 
Hero is even told he needs a haircut. Harry may carry some prejudices, but he's not the proselytising type. Harry's not going to listen to, nor give, nor act upon any kind of street speech. Critics of the film can't have it both ways. The liberal establishment in the film either thwarts Harry's fascist impulses, or they acquiesce to his brutality. Which is it? He is forced out of the police force at the end of the film, remember? Perhaps you think vigilantism itself is fascist. Well, often, if the system continually turns a blind eye to transgressions, the system can fail. But if you think Dirty Harry is fascist, just check out 1974's Death Wish. Charles Bronson plays a middle-aged architect who becomes a conservative vigilante after he and his family are the victim of a home invasion. He literally retreats to the Old West, Arizona, to pull himself together before heading back east as a subway and street vigilante. And he just kills unknown hoods. He doesn't even get to find his Scorpio, the thugs who killed his wife. Dirty Harry is not fascist. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have other problems. The literal male gaze sure gets a workout in this film. Women appear as objects of unwanted, even unknown male viewing. Scorpio and Harry have this both in common. Harry's view on race is uncertain, although the inclusion of black bank robbers seems symptomatic of stereotyping that may justify horrific police violence. Racial slurs are passed over lightly if not endorsed, but you might plausibly maintain that Harry is colourblind and only wants to oppress the criminal class. In a later sequel, when the higher-ups upbraid the inspector for his reputation in the minority community, Harry very revealingly retorts, Minorities? You mean the hoods? Harry truly does hate and offend them all, like the dead Kennedys, like Ted Danson's Becker, like Garfield the Cat. Fascism was a phenomenon that seemed to come from nowhere, It accepted prejudicial violence in the name of national unity, sometimes even exalted it. Does Harry's internal code really see him actively persecute minorities? What about Chico? Harry respects him. We have now for your consideration a clip of the Twilight Zone episode He Lives, in which a young racist starts off on a street corner spouting vitriol against minorities. They call us hate mongers. They say we're prejudiced. They say we're biased. They say that we hate the minorities. The minorities. Understand the term, neighbors. The minorities. Shall I tell you who the minorities are? We, 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 we are the minorities. Because patriotism is a minority. Because love of country is the minority. 
Oh, there'll come a morning. Yes, there will. There will come a morning when these men have taken over your home. They've taken over your daughters. They'll be sitting right there on your doorstep. If anybody's sitting on your doorstep, buddy, he's a man in a white coat. You better just go with him quietly. That was Dennis Hopper. Now, can you imagine Harry delivering a speech like that? I don't think so. He hasn't got the time to be a demagogue, frankly. He has too many people to save. Harry is a disgruntled public servant just doing his job. Harry says he doesn't know why he stayed in the job this long. It must be his code or some appeal from outside the world of policing. Someone expects him to do his job, so he does. He wants to protect citizens, not the law. After the events of this movie, are audiences really going to start clamouring for Harry to be promoted to chief? It hardly seems so. The inspector has no legions of supporters to help him seize power. What he has is an autistic-like devotion to the truth and retribution, whereas fascism is devious and murky. Harry is a lone, blunt instrument that fights craziness with his own violence, because sometimes that's just what it takes. He's a monster that will take down the other monsters. For Harry, justice sometimes requires a bullet or a stepping on of the leg. And until the day all liberal democracies remove the death penalty, justice still does require a metaphoric bullet sometimes. The charge of fascism comes from critics too eager to confront the conservatism of Eastwood's early movies rather than tackle Dirty Harry on its own merits. In Coogan's Bluff, to pick but one film, Eastwood's titular cop disdains going soft on adolescent criminals and chides court-appointed psychologists for wet-nursing the next generation of wayward adolescents. The liberal baiting of Eastwood's early period in movies like this no doubt colours people's objective review of Dirty Harry. During the span of the five Dirty Harrys over 17 years, there might once have been such a thing as an Eastwood movie. But as the actor's catalogue has grown exponentially, there is less and less obvious political continuity. There are, however some general themes that have emerged in his work. 1. When in doubt, take the law into your own hands, because the law will not save you from evil doers. 2. Bureaucrats are often stupid, or they value technology, or ideology, over old-fashioned know-how. Dirty Harry is the epitome of both these themes. They are essentially libertarian preoccupations. And his explicitly political films are not uniformly right-wing. Take the many examples where conservative touchstones have been challenged. Euthanasia in Million Dollar Baby. The deconstruction of masculinity in Bronco Billy and Unforgiven. The traumas of childhood affecting life outcomes. A Perfect World, Mystic River. The unearned righteousness of law enforcement, Dirty Harry notwithstanding, vindictive small-town police in Bronco Billy, a delusional OCDC paranoic FBI director in J. Edgar, 
and most recently the ultimate rusted judgment of authorities in Richard Jewell. Okay, Eastwood is clearly not a bleeding heart, and Dirty Harry is not a good liberal movie, but you've got tons of those. Roger Ebert said Dirty Harry's moral position is fascist, no doubt about it. No doubts? That's fascism. Dirty Harry is fascist. I don't support his break-the-law policy, but I do support his Scorpio-killing policy. Dirty Harry is an almost perfect piece of propaganda for paralegal police power. The movie says you may have to break the law to achieve justice, or it says those laws shouldn't exist. The system in the film lets sicko criminals get away, literally, with murder, by affording them legal rights that cripple the ability of cops like Harry. Pauline Kale said the movie offered a magically simple culprit for police deaths. The Liberals. Harry has no faith in the system he works for. Witness how the neighbourhood watch beat him up like a lowlife and see how he likes the cut of their jib. Apologists for the film downplay Harry's seductive ass-kicking moments, but we know we are supposed to find the inspector so very cool. Harry is a troubling fascist lightning rod because, unlike Popeye or Doyle in The French Connection, he's not lewd and boorish, but soft-spoken and methodical. That's even more unsettling. He is an unapologetic vigilante who scorns the system and no longer defers to office holders, let alone the requirement of suspects' rights. Cinema cops in the wake of Dirty Harry would get real street, and only loose cannons such as they could get an edge on the rise of crime. Perpetually in trouble with their incompetent superiors, movies like Dirty Harry gave birth not only to indeterminate rip-offs, but in Europe, an entire genre, Poletioteschi. Meek do-it-by-the-book police would find themselves on the roll of honour to the fallen. A section of the Filipino police force ordered a print of the film for use in training. Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel, the director, found themselves invited to address police gatherings. If cops back then liked it that much, it must be fascist. Cultural reviewers rightly sensed Callahan's approach was dangerously brutish. The movie anticipated the coming appeal of the no-nonsense 80s, the Reagan era of being tough on crime, zero tolerance, and mandatory sentencing. While Harry is never explicitly political, he clearly represents popular feelings of resentment the quiet majority of people had over the predominance of new ways. This is how sociologists explain the growing appeal of fascism in the 1930s, a beleaguered middle class, fearful of a rising cultural left, and the dislocating modernity offered by the 20th century. The whole dike seemed like it was about to crumble in, and people lashed out at that which was different or emerging. 
I've seen it before. I've seen it all before. That was another time, Mr. Gantz. Another place. Another kind of people. That doesn't go here. That's what we said, too. There were brown scum. Temporary insanity. Part of the passing scene. Too monstrous to be real. So we ignored them. Or laughed at them. Because we couldn't believe that there were enough insane people to walk alongside of them. But in order to understand it, one must understand the period in which it happened. There was a fever over the land. A fever of disgrace, of indignity, of hunger. We had a democracy, yes. But it was torn by elements within. Above all, there was fear. Fear of today. Fear of tomorrow. Fear of our neighbors. And fear of ourselves. Only when you understand that can you understand what Hitler meant to us. Because he said to us, lift your heads. Be proud to be German. There are devils among us. Once these devils will be destroyed, your misery will be destroyed. It was the old, old story of the sacrificial lamb. What about those of us who knew better? We who knew the words were lies and worse than lies. Why did we sit silent? Why did we take part? Because we loved our country. What difference does it make if a few political extremists lose their rights? What difference does it make if a few racial minorities lose their rights? It is only a passing phase. It is only a stage we are going through. It will be discarded sooner or later. Hitler himself will be discarded sooner or later. And then one day, we looked around and found that we were in an even more terrible danger. The ritual began in this courtroom, swept over the land like a raging, roaring disease. What was going to be a passing phase had become the way of life. You've just heard another excerpt of that same Twilight Zone episode, followed by Burt Lancaster in the film Judgment at Nuremberg, both accounts trying to give a psychosocial explanation for why fascism was so appealing. Fascism was an unexpected turn in history. It was not the inevitable rise of any one 19th century political tendency. It evolved quickly, without time for liberal democracy to get an arrest warrant against it. Cut by cut, snigger by snigger, people undermined the courts, favoured yes or no plebiscites, and painted every social unrest as an unprecedented emergency. Harry, who knows what justice is and how to carry it out, follows the fascist book from A to B to remove the criminal. Occam's razor, but with a 44. Quote, Good guys can peep into windows without consent, use racial slurs and torture criminals because they are the good guys. Fascists in America are in general not quite ready to pull the trigger and call themselves fascist 
They just call it justice instead. End quote. Liberalism in the movie's universe has already failed San Francisco by either creating the likes of Scorpio or not sorting him out earlier. There's a class of criminal that cannot be reasoned with. No rules will sort them out. They have to be euthanized. We know this is Harry's code. He shoots the bastard. That's his policy. 1971 society was unravelling, and we needed a strong man with a cool exterior and possibly a steady trigger finger to put things right. In the 1968 US presidential race, Richard Nixon had played Ronald Reagan's successful gubernatorial playbook of two years earlier, promising to put an end to rioting and wind back to what he could of the great society. He promised to drain the swamp of liberal hangers-on. Listen to Richard Nixon explaining how the new right of the 1960s would hope to appeal to the worst in the population. How do you move a mob, Mr. Fulmer? How do you excite them? Speak to them in their language, on their level. Make their hate your hate. If they are poor, talk to them of poverty. If they are afraid, talk to them of their fears. And if they are angry, Mr. Volmer, if they are angry, give them objects for their anger. Okay, so that wasn't quite Richard Nixon exactly, but you get the drift. Fascist states valorised the purported uniform values of the past. They wailed at what they said was being betrayed and promised a return to greatness to a time when North Beach was more beatnik burlesque than sophomore stripper, when gun nuts were gun nuts only, or a return to the Hallison days when you didn't need lint removers on your public servants' uniforms. Fascist hooligans must make bourgeois society believe that it is constantly threatened, and so it is that Harry warns the mayor of all the potential miscreants to look out for extortionists, rooftop prowlers, rifle nuts, peepers, before he is interrupted. Harry reacts with such murderous frenzy at the football stadium that it isn't out of the realm of possibility that he might kill in a grossly arbitrary fashion whomever his paranoid mind decided were cultural enemies. Surely he's been tested by worse than the likes of the goading Scorpio before. What did he do to them? As he says in the sequel Magnum Force, there's nothing wrong with shooting as long as the right people get shot. Society doesn't need cops with values. One value will suffice, the dignity of every person. By contrast, the moralistic world of Callahan's is a clear and simple binary structure with no room for inconsistency. It is perfectly clear always who is good and who is evil. Add to this his capacity for violence, and he moves beyond John C. Riley in Magnolia or Dwight Schrute of The Office. He becomes an unholy menace. As fascist expert Robert Paxton puts it, every time someone winked, at vigilante action taken against political enemies, 
without troubling themselves too much about the niceties, a door was open to fascism. Look at the DA scene. I'm all broken up over that man's rights. Here is a clip of Spencer Tracy, head jurist in Judgment at Nuremberg, echoing Benjamin Franklin's sentiments that those who would give up essential liberty, purchase a little temporary safety, deserve neither liberty nor safety. This trial has shown that under a national crisis, ordinary, even able and extraordinary men can delude themselves into the commission of crimes so vast and heinous that they beggar the imagination. No one who has sat through the trial can ever forget them. How easily it can happen. There are those in our own country, too, who today speak of the protection of country, of survival. A decision must be made in the life of every nation at the very moment when the grasp of the enemy is at its throat. Then it seems that the only way to survive is to use the means of the enemy, to rest survival upon what is expedient, to look the other way. Well, the the answer to that is survival as what? A country isn't a rock. It's not an extension of oneself. It's what it stands for. It's what it stands for when standing for something is the most difficult. Before the people of the world, let it now be noted that here in our decision, this is what we stand for. Justice, truth, and the value of a single human being. The film Dirty Harry opines for more police powers. Untie my hands so I can better police society. But if it's too easy to be a cop, then it's a police state. As the end credits roll, the viewer can't help but loathe every one of the obstacles that have confounded Harry over the course of the film. The largely silent police chief has not offered him any counsel against the soft-headed mayor. Bressler just shrugs fervitively all the time. Harry is truly on his own. Imagine what the Bay City would look like if Harry Callahan had his way. Maybe something a little bit like Big Whiskey, the frontier town in Eastwood's 1992 Academy Award-winning masterwork, Unforgiven. Released the same year as the Rodney King riots, the film also functions as an apology to Dirty Harry. It is a dissertation on the very entire notion of law and order. It deals with the consequences of violence, even when taken up for an ostensibly just reason. Gene Hackman plays small-town dictator Little Bill Daggett, the film's putative villain. Daggett has a violent past, but partially hides it behind a rational appearance and an almost benevolent disposition. Ironically, the sheriff practices total gun control. I decide what's safe, is his basic mantra, and martial law is what he really practices. Little Bill wants everyone to live in a rough-tuned house like him. Problem is, he sees himself as a pacifist and sees potential troublemakers everywhere. The catalyst for the plot is the cutting up of a prostitute. 
the perpetrators are not deeply evil, just a pair of, quote, dumb lick-it-up kids. Little Bill accepts horses, ignoring the woman's folk call for more old-school retribution. The women resort to recruiting old gunslingers Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman to exact revenge. Little Bill tortures Morgan Freeman for, at best information, worst because he likes it. Sound familiar to anyone we know? Unforgiven at least recognises good guys aren't all good, and bad guys aren't all bad. Killing debases everyone involved, and summary justice, let alone revenge, is rarely executed to anyone's satisfaction. Nobody wins in Dirty Harry either, but Callahan is supposed to be the hero, according to the histrionics of the film. Modern San Francisco, fortunately, is not in the hands of a Little Bill or a Harry Callahan. Current Mayor Breed was raised in poverty in the Western edition, read the Fillmore District, and her brother reserves a 44-year sentence for armed robbery, for which the mayor repeatedly asked the governor for clemency. A popwell, if you will. What would Harry say? Well, I guess you're not your brother, while struggling not to roll his eyes. Ironically, there are some modern initiatives of the city Harry could get behind, like the recent power of the city to pursue civil damages against graffiti taggers, instead of solely relying on criminal prosecutions. Or 2014's Proposition A, a 500 million bond to fund street repaving, including, ironically enough, Kizar Stadium Drive. On the other hand, those crazy green liberal supervisors initiated a styrofoam ban. What about hot dog connoisseurs? They tried to stop a new jail being built in favour of mental health clinics and made the outfitting of every officer with body cameras compulsory. All investigations of officer-involved shootings have also been referred to federal authorities. Perhaps the biggest red flag to Harry, however, would be the work of the new district attorney, Chesa Boudin, himself the son and adoptive son of former political terrorists. Previously a public defender, Boudin fired six prosecutors upon election to office, basically for being too gung-ho about prosecuting. Later, Boudin announced his office would no longer seek charges for drugs found during pretextual traffic pullovers. We can well assume Harry would be very sceptical. 1971 seemed to call for tough measures, Chinatown gang wars, zebra killings, not to mention the Zodiac Killer, all meant the Bay Area had a higher murder rate than New York at the time. You can understand people wanting easy solutions to societal unrest. But what cost? And did we really need a one-man fixer? San Francisco has always had reactionary elements. Dan White, the former policeman and alderman who murdered supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor Mascoigne in 1978, talked about campaigning against malignancies. Read Gays and Latinos. The legitimacy of violence against a demonised internal enemy is at the heart of the fascist impulse. The film gives us a made-to-order malignancy 
in the form of Scorpio. He is pure nightmare, an over-the-top exaggeration of a shaggy-haired miscreant who blends easily with the city's hippie community. The implication is that the anti-war movement is sheltering murderers and anti-social peacenecks, or would never notice one more lunatic in their midst. Pauline Kael criticised how we are never let into Scorpio's background. Quote, What produces a killer might be a subject for an artist. Read, not Eastwood. But it is a nuisance to an exciter, who doesn't want to slow the action down. If evil is in fact beyond human comprehension, then we are all licensed to kill it. After the unprecedented mass mobilisation and public engagement that comes after, say, a war or a turbulent civil era, the establishment finds it's much harder to rule on the status quo. To combat what they saw as a cavalcade of undesirable influences, fascists agitated for the replacement of the tired bourgeois elite with new authoritarian men. Bye-bye, John Vernon. Conservatives of the 1930s attempted to govern in the same manner as they had pre-war, thinking they could harness the demagogue's instincts. But they never counted on the direction of the energy on the street. When Harry and Chico are driving around looking for Scorpio's tan suitcase, you can see that for our hero, it is the new liberalism that is repressive to him. When he is later reprimanded for denying Miranda rights, it all appears to him, quote, like mumbo-jumbo, nonsense on stilts in the words of Jeremy Bentham. Harry respects the liberal law until a point, but ultimately it's a paperweight that can be pushed aside without too much effort. In fascism, community comes before humankind. Gone are the enjoyment of constitutional rights. There is a contempt for the minor freedoms, Miranda writes, at the endeavour to reach the greater freedom, the nation. Fascism has taken many different forms over the years. The German regime was known for its, quote, bizarre mixture of legalism and arbitrary violence. That sounds like Harry's preferred M.O., Give us a basic outline of a law if you need to, but also the ability to colour around it. The system doesn't save people. People save people. To butcher a line from the outlaw Josie Wales. But you can't have order without law. There needs to be an adherence to the law, even for those that are enforcing it. Harry does not adhere to the law when it matters most. He's supposed to be better than the criminals he chews out. Stop trashing the courts, Harry. If you have good luck with your instincts, you might as well trust them, Eastwood said. Let's hope there's a limit. God suppressed Scorpio's scream while denying Harry's fascist regime. Dirty Harry means clean streets for the city of San Francisco. Of course, fascism is now also just a kind of all-purpose insult that people just hurl at each other on all uh, in all political walks, and that and that is not a useful um, 
uh, uh, way to use it, um, in my view, certainly not historically useful or analytically, politically useful. The reason why I think we should is because the reason why fascism is difficult to define is because it is ultra-nationalist. And that's why uh, people were warning that an American fascism would look American. It would be wrapped in the flag and carrying the cross, as that uh, one quotation has it. And and even though uh, Sinclair Lewis didn't say it, that doesn't mean it's not an accurate description of what an American fascism might look like. And, and that each country would have its own. That Spanish fascism under Franco didn't look like Italian fascism under Mussolini, which didn't look like fascism under Hitler. They all had their very distinct identities. That's what makes it difficult to define because each country has its own nationalism that it is uh, uh, trying to inspire in its, um, you know, in its followers. And so it's always going to be very specific to its time and its place. The threat is very real. And the the degree to which I think that as, as a society, whether you want to call it the West or the global North or, you know, liberal democracies over the last few generations, I think, again, as an individual citizen, I think that we have taken our democratic stru- structures for granted. And that's why we are seeing them under threat right now. So there you have it. Dirty Harry contains multitudes. Like all good drama, it gives us pause to think. It is an ambivalent masterpiece about hard-nosed solutions to apprehending a slippery murderer. Siegel's ambiguity wins out. Harry is the system, but also outside the system. Harry is the law, but also not the law. That the film leaves a muddle of morality is not a crime, for a piece of art anyway. Dirty Harry is a movie about extenuating circumstances, which always makes for great suspense. It is not supposed to be real. The movie came at an unusual place in the 20th century that small window between the judicial activism of the liberal 60s and the collapse, Watergate, when all Nixon's promise to provide an uncorrupt, safer and conciliatory nation fell by the wayside. The film is in part so memorable because it appeals all over the political spectrum. The fact that the law is a poor tool to enforce justice need not be a right-wing or left-wing position. On the one hand, it's a guilty pleasure for the left. Quote, Harry's vision of a world gone mad is effective enough to make even a card-carrying ACLU member cheer for Harry's type of vengeance. All the police officers, aside from Harry, are essentially buffoons under the thumb of spineless municipal leaders. On the other hand, it's also a wet dream for conservatives that someday someone on the constabulary will let common sense reign. They cheer a hero cowboy, protecting a frontier that has succumbed to lawlessness, a simple answer to complex problems. Yum, yum. Also, Harry's nihilism is downright cool, and right-wing icons generally don't do cool so convincingly. They need all the pop cultural icons they can get. If viewers buy into the fiction of a nation sliding into criminal chaos, and they accept the fantasy that only one man can be relied upon to decide what's right and what's wrong 
in or out of the ballot box, then yes, there could be a fascist problem. Even the trailer realises how problematic Harry Callahan is as a myth and a reality, proclaiming, this is a movie about a couple of killers, the one with the badge is Harry. But critics seem to trust audiences less than filmmakers do. According to Ernest Hemingway, no subject is terrible if the story is true, if the prose is clean and honest, and if it affirms courage and grace under pressure. Grace might not be the word for Harry Callahan, but the best thing to do would be make another movie that argues something different. Some will never be able to see beyond the unrealistic premise the movie runs with. Scorpio is so irredeemably evil that his crimes wouldn't make sense to an FBI profiler, one said. They need to see Scorpio with a backstory a reason why he turned out so bad. Reviewers nowadays want to be woke. When they see a theme in a movie, they want to make it the only theme. Clint Eastwood, of course, does himself and his past movies no favours by calling out modern political correctness. We're really in a pussy generation. Everybody's walking on eggshells, he said in a recent interview. Film is an emotional art form. It's not an intellectual art form at all. To me, it was an exciting detective story. Here's a guy who is so dogmatic that nothing is going to stop him when his mind is made up. Only there's not much detective work going on in Dirty Harry now, is there, Clint? We've talked about some of the themes in Eastwood films before. Don Siegel has a number of discernible through lines in his body of work. His male protagonists have been called, quote, prickly, amoral, outsiders in opposition to a corrupt or dim-witted establishment. Siegel's films, quote, concern loners or psychopaths. The films are lean and spare, like the loner heroes. His is a man's world. His is a world where nice guys finish last, or at very best, hanging on, by the skin of their teeth, living on nerve ends. Characters in his films don't have the time to show they're not bigoted, to show their internal life, to demonstrate that they are not fascist really. Harry doesn't sweat the small stuff. He lets Mr Beaners pass. He's not fascist in that way. He doesn't really care about your race or your genitals. He only gets involved when it's time to shoot things, when it's already too late to ask questions. He doesn't even particularly like the people he's sworn his life to protect. His is a hunter's code, rather than a serve and protect code. Dirty Harry may have manipulated credulity with such unrealistic extenuating circumstances, but it is a fantasy people. Does the film have problems? Undeniably. Dirty Harry is a right-wing fantasy about swift justice. And Dirty Harry is a left-wing cautionary tale about vigilantism. Make of it what you will. That's why it's so good. 
Well, there you go. Matter settled, right? <laughs> what do you think? Why not head over to dirtyharryminute.com and leave a message? Is Dirty Harry fascist or not? Email us your thoughts uh, to dirtyharryminute at gmail.com and hey, if you like, leave a recorded message, MP3, and we'll play it in the next episode. Don't be shy. We uh, haven't received anything yet. Uh, it feels so good to get that episode out of the way. The Black Lives Matter protests of a few months ago, well, they're still going, aren't they, unfortunately? Um, sorry, the police response, I should say, not the the protest. And the contested state of policing across the US was also part of the impetus of putting this episode together. Because quite aside from whether our favourite film is strictly fascist or not, is in some ways academic. Um, today's police force still faces not only that same criticism, but even more distrust. Allegations of racial bias and excessive force, and a system where municipal authorities are beholden to police unions. Uh, stark reverse to our movie Dirty Harry when the, uh, the authorities call the shots. Um, but in modern context, police forces are a far bigger beast than back in 1971. Obviously, we don't live in America, so we don't know quite the, the, the type of policing that you see on the streets there, but over the last few weeks, I've heard about this broken windows policy of the 80s or whatever that was about making people feel safe by cracking down on just minor infractions and misdemeanors. Um, I didn't realize in America that often parking tickets are given by not municipal workers, but by police themselves. So you can see why people, there's a lot more interaction at fractious times between police and people who are just trying to go, you know, go through the normal day with, you know, small citations and things. Um, obviously a lot of this would come into place long after Harry had retired but, yeah, the series does explore the issue of excessive police force quite a lot, um, most notably in The Enforcer and Sudden Impact, and also covers the relationship between the police and the media too. Now, we, we may have to evaluate a lot of cops' films, including Dirty Harry, in the modern era and see what they teach us and how they treat these issues and whether... Even as escapist action movies, they do damage um, and unfairly glorify policemen. So what I've got together, what you're about to hear, is a collection of news interviews by academics and journalists on the subject of policing in the US generally that I've cobbled together um, in the wake of the George Floyd uh, murder. <laughs> and the protest of this year, that, and about the state of policing in the US in general, both from American and Australian sources, which I thought are interesting. So please have a listen to this. Um, we'll catch you later on Dirty Harry Minute. That's one thing about Dirty Harry Minute. They don't play any favorites. Brown, you see this? Yeah, let's pull them over. 
I'm slowly exiting my vehicle. How you doing? I'm not a threat, sir. Please don't shoot right. me. Please don't shoot me. Don't worry I'm about it. Relax, relax. Put your hands my on the hands hood. are on the vehicle. Great. You don't have any weapons on you, do you, man? No, sir, no weapons. Right. I'm very tense right now. Do you have any drugs in the car? No drugs. Not high, don't have any drugs, never had any drugs. Okay. All right. You know, statistically speaking, this is the most dangerous five minutes of my life. I'm being pulled over by law enforcement. It's okay. Take it easy. Just breathe. You want me to breathe? You want me to relax? The chances of me dying during a routine traffic stop are greater than, than I don't even know. I mean, it's the most dangerous five minutes of my life, man, being pulled over by law enforcement. Mamá, respira, man, por favor, respira. I don't speak Spanish. I, I have no threat. That's you? Mars, please. Okay. Sorry to inconvenience you. Have a good day, sir. Thank you for your service, officer. Just in terms of people looking at it from the outside, wondering... Where does the anger come from? Well, this should fill in some of the imaginative gaps about where the anger comes from. It's the complete impunity of it. It's the officer doing it, obviously, in the belief that there will be no consequences for him. You really need to absorb how long they are. Eight minutes sounds like a long time, but when you watch it, Mm. it's not just eight minutes. It's eight minutes with a whole crowd going, you're killing him, you're killing him, you're killing him. He can't breathe for eight straight minutes. And it's not just the kneeling cop. It's the cop next to him. Like, what's his name? Total, I think his name is Total, who's um who's just sitting there dumb faced. It looks like he's spent the entire eight minutes trying to think of a comeback and never coming up with one. He looks like he looks like he just looks dazed over, just sitting there, just staring at them blankly while they're saying to him, "Just take his pulse, just take his pulse. What's his pulse? Take his pulse." And he's just sitting there, not knowing how to react. It just come to me. It comes off. As incredibly stupid, yeah. as in like just like the, like I don't know about the guy who's kneeling on him, mm. but the guy standing there watching it yeah. seems to me like he didn't have a thought during that entire eight minutes. No. He was just blank. I mean, it goes without just- saying it should never have got to that point. What he was suspected of was passing a twenty dollar counterfeit bill mm. in a store. Mm which he was probably unaware of. The owners of that store have subsequently come out and said they will never ever involve the police again in a nonviolent incident. <laughs> Um, it is a stark reminder in this country uh, that this is the way that black men and black women are treated uh, when confronted by police, even when they are trying to comply with police. We saw this in a host of other cases, Tamir Rice and Sandra Bland and certainly Eric Garner, uh, Michael Brown. But this case in particular, because there's so much video captured from storefront cameras, from cell, uh, cell phone cameras, and we seem to have the complete story It's a pretty good indication that this was just excessive force and nothing more. What upset demonstrators here was that there were no immediate charges. And then once they finally did charge Derek Chauvin, um, it was third degree murder and not first degree murder. When most people were looking at the documentary evidence were saying, if anything warrants a first degree murder charge, it's this particular case. The last part of that disappointment comes from the fact that there are those who are calling for charges against the other three officers in this case. And they're very frustrated as to why there's been no discussion about charging those officers as complicit um, accessories to this death because they did not intervene and um, were actually active participants in the sense that they witnessed this and did nothing 
uh, to protect the life of Mr. Floyd. One of the really remarkable things about this is the absolute impunity of the officer doing this while he knows there's a camera rolling and while there are multiple witnesses around. And this is yet another kind of um, strike against what I can remember was once a prevailing theory about police brutality, which was that if everything is recorded, then police will behave themselves. Yeah, he definitely knew who's been recorded. Yeah, so there was this major move after um, uh, after some very high-profile killings of African-Americans by police in the middle of the last decade uh, with body cameras mm. basically as the solution. Now, I'm not uh, – I actually haven't seen any systematic evidence about this, but it does appear that body cameras have not been the kind of panacea – that people believed they would be. Of course, there was another very savage incident in, uh, I think it was in Louisville, not long after that, um, the killing of another man by a police officer who it was later found had turned his body camera off. So, I mean, maybe it does make some kind of difference, but not if you can turn it off. This, of course, comes not very long after the case of Ahmed Aubrey in Georgia, who was killed while jogging after being pursued by two white men who thought they shouldn't be, uh, th- that he shouldn't be in their neighborhood. They killed him. That was caught on video. The police initially ruled. Oh, uh, Dave, don't forget, he yeah. was suspected of loitering Sus- around the construction suspected site. Suspected of loitering <laughs> around a construction site, yes. <laughs> Vadim Dale is originally from Melbourne, but for the past decade, he's been a police officer in Louisville, Kentucky. The killing of George Floyd. What was it like as a police officer to see that footage, to watch George Floyd being slowly killed, basically, as a policeman kneeled on his neck? Uh, you know, I wish I, wish I had the vocabulary uh, to articulate how that made me feel. I, I had uh, knots in my stomach. Um, you know, I, I just... It's senseless. There's, there's just no need for that. Um, when, when the cuffs go on, um, that's it. Um, you know, you do your best to, to take care of them. And, and to see um, those sort of actions um, is, is just disheartening. And, and, you know, I've always said that um, no one dislikes um, bad cops more than good cops. Um, they, 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 they can ruin decades of hard work um, in, in split-second decisions. And, um, you know... They're sort of decisions that, that aren't made um, by, by good cops. Uh, good cops don't make decisions like that. Is there an acknowledgement amongst police officers like you that excessive force is used by police officers or by some police officers? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I, I stand here and am and, and, um, happy to, to expose the flaws within law enforcement in this country. You know, I came from Australia and... Uh, I have a very sort of um, happy-go-lucky sort of attitude in, in my policing manner. Um, and, and it was evident to me immediately when, when I came over here that, that there was some serious issues um, and divides uh, between black and white. And, and obviously, in a law enforcement career, I was firsthand able to observe um, these flaws in, in what is centuries of, of trauma between um, the black and white community. Um, yeah, there's plenty of times where I've had to step in and say that's enough to police. Um, I, I don't care about my reputation. I care about what's right and what's wrong. Um, you know, we're, we're imperfect creatures. Uh, no one's perfect. 
Um, but there is a there is a line when once you cross that line, um, that there's a much deeper root there that that's um, showing its ugly head, and and it's very hard in uh, in a, a policing aspect to be able to wean out police w- men and women um, if there's sort of uh, underlying discretions that they have or issues with certain races of people. It's such a hard thing to wean out. Um, uh, you know, if you don't love people, you shouldn't be in this career. What needs to change within the police and the culture of the police? Have you encountered a culture that you think is to blame? Well, I, 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 you know, that's such a difficult question to answer because I am my own person and I police on my beliefs of what is right and wrong. I understand that, but you've the, been trained in that system. What did you I encounter don't care about, there? I don't care about training, okay? It's not about training. This is about loving people if you don't love people there's no amount of training that can fix that if and and this is what i'm saying there's a flaw in the process when you hire people we are imperfect creatures there is no process that can seamlessly get someone through and say that that person is a perfect person for policing so don't tell me about training and don't tell me I've, i've been lucky enough to surround myself with good honest police for over a decade there's been instances where I've questioned what they've done and I've said that was unacceptable. Everyone knows they can't do that around me. Now, whether they choose to do it on their own, that's, that's something that's out of my control. I can try and guide them spiritually, mentally with love and guidance, but there's no training that can purely fix a, a, a person that doesn't have love and compassion and empathy for life. If you don't have it, you shouldn't be policing. That's it. That's the bottom line. If you don't love people then you don't have what it takes to police. The, the, the thing that dis- disturbs me is this idea that they should defund the police. You can't get rid of the police. What you need to do is spend more money and train them better and high, have higher standards and do it the way you do the military, where it's very difficult to get in and you weed people out that are weak. Like, that guy was a pussy. That guy leaning on that guy's neck like that, that guy's a monster. It's police brutality on black women, White women, white old men, black old men, young guys. It's just just police brutality over and over and over and over again. There's a problem of racism in this country for sure. There's also a real problem with people that have the kind of power the cops have that are weak people, that are that are sociopaths. And that's that's as much of a problem as any of this. Yeah. Yeah, you tack the racism onto it and you got a horrible situation, but those people are psychopaths. They're they're monsters. Like I remember talking to a security guy and he said the best guys are the guys that that they de-escalate it. Yeah. Warrior cops. The first rule of law enforcement is to go home at the end of your shift. This is Seth Stoughton, a former cop. The key principle is officer survival. That's what all of that training is designed to promote. But it ends up endangering civilians rather than preserving their safety. The warrior culture, the warrior mindset, the belief that police officers are soldiers engaged in battle with the criminal element, that mindset and the training has really contributed to some shootings that were most likely avoidable. And this warrior mindset doesn't begin on day one of police academy. It starts well before that. It starts in police recruitment videos that show officers shooting rifles, strapping on hard body armor, using force. 
That attracts a particular type of candidate, and the police academy further uh, entrenches this idea of the police warrior. And how does it do that? It teaches officers to be afraid by telling them that policing is an incredibly dangerous profession to assume that everyone around them is a threat until proven otherwise. And I want to emphasize that. Officers are trained to view every encounter as a potential deadly force incident. So give us an idea of some of the scenarios that you might be taught or worked through when you're a new recruit. You walk up to a person who is loitering outside of a convenience store, their hands are in their pockets, you as the officer begin talking to them and without saying a word, they pull a gun out of their pocket and begin shooting you. You pull over a vehicle and before you can even fully get out of your car, the driver of the vehicle gets out of their car, points a gun at you and begins shooting at you and so on. So when officers are faced with a tense situation, their warrior training kicks in, he says. It's what some say happened back in 2014 in the case of Eric Garner, a black man selling cigarettes outside a shop. Officers approached. Eric Garner was verbally abusive. They put him in a chokehold and, like George Floyd, despite him saying he couldn't breathe, the police kept that chokehold going till Eric Garner died. The two techniques used by the police in these killings, a chokehold and a knee to the neck to two unarmed men, are either forbidden by many police departments or only allowed when a police officer's life is under threat. In neither of these cases were the police at risk of their lives, yet their warrior training still kicked in. That's one example of the difference between uh, de-escalation and a harder approach that the officers used more quickly than perhaps they needed to. Seth Stoughton says this warrior cop mentality developed in the 70s after a few high-profile incidents where officers were killed. And it resulted in the police developing a very different attitude towards survival to the military. When the military is designing a mission, they have in mind the, the fact that they're going to lose soldiers. The police profession has strongly repudiated that notion. No officer fatalities are acceptable. It's as though over the past few decades a calculation has been made by American police that civilian deaths are an acceptable price to pay to minimise police deaths. But that calculation isn't final. Some states are beginning to make changes to police training, encouraging officers to find other ways of resolving situations without using force. Ironically, one of the first places to announce it would be ending the warrior cop training was Minneapolis, the city where George Floyd was killed. When the mayor announced this ban on that training last year, the president of the police union was furious, calling the ban illegal and saying the union would continue making the training available for any police who wanted it. It's clear that warrior culture is embedded in the police and it will take years, generations to change. But you make this unique point, and that is that it's the best way to tackle police policing problems is through defunding. Talk to me about that. Right. So this is important in two ways. One is there's a growing you know, chorus of calls around the U.S. 
to reduce the burden of policing on communities by dialing back their scope of operation. And that means cutting their budgets, cutting the budget for school police, cutting the budget for narcotics units, cutting the budget for homeless outreach squads, and instead investing that money in real community needs real solutions that are going to address homelessness, the opioid crisis, failing schools, all problems that our politicians have turned over to police to manage. Police in the U.S. are conferred with almost this unquestionable status. Uh, There's an entire hero narrative uh, that accompanies them, you know, that's propagated through TV and um, and all sorts of and all sorts of other means. Um, I mean, they have very difficult jobs. There's no doubt about that. And so that tips the balance when they sit down to negotiate their contracts. They actually a lot of times have the political power in those negotiations. No politician in the U.S. wants to be seen as not giving the heroes of their community exactly what they need to make people safer. And so as a result of that, they've been able to negotiate some very powerful provisions. So they really have tremendous political clout in this country. Okay, so they have the cultural capital of being heroes, votes and money to campaign against Anyone who goes against them. Yeah, it's a strong combo. And the unions have been around for pretty much as long as there's been a police force. But Melissa says they do seem to be in the midst of a kind of golden age. We've really seen them sort of rise to power in a way that we haven't before, um, probably in the last 20 years or so, I would say. I mean, they've rocketed to power in ways that I don't think was matched before. So what changed? Why did they all of a sudden rocket to power in in this way? What we saw within the last 10 years are two things. The first of which is the Barack Obama election. And his particular administration took a keen interest in trying to promote equality um, and transparent uh, policing across the country. And so that meant that a number of um, what we call consent decrees, which are ways in which um, these local police departments then became accountable to federal oversight to make sure that particularly just and equitable policing was happening across the country. And the unions didn't take too kindly to either the Barack Obama administration's, um, what they saw as an overreach, and they really didn't like the citizenry, particularly for minority communities, questioning uh, their officers. We've seen a huge turn towards the right. These are unions on a national level that have thrown their support behind candidates like Donald Trump. And so he received a tremendous amount of support from law enforcement. And we stand here united today to introduce our candidate for the next president of the United States, Donald J. Trump. Anybody killing a police officer death penalty. It's going to happen, okay? Can't go. We can't let this go. The Obama administration and the handcuffing and oppression of police was despicable. The the first thing President Trump did when he took office was turn that around. And it's from this position of power that the unions have been able to negotiate some pretty extraordinary contracts for their members. 
And what a lot of these contracts include are provisions like um, the ability to erase or hide from public view any sort of citizen complaints that come up against a police officer. So, for example, in one American city called Cleveland, there was a rule that said that after six months, any unsubstantiated claims against an officer needed to be destroyed. So it makes it difficult to sort of establish if there are patterns and practices of misbehavior. And so when the particular Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, you know, had placed his knee and, and killed George Floyd, there was a Minneapolis city police press release that said, hey, this guy had 17 you know, complaints against him, but yet another city database had listed 12. And then a group of organizers and, and activists in Minneapolis had used public records requests to be able to pull together their own list. And they had complaints that the other two city databases didn't. And so nobody knows even the exact number. So even if a police department wanted to be able to give you the correct information, there's a good chance they couldn't. Then there's the fact that it's incredibly difficult to fire a police officer. And if you do, there's an elaborate review system in place, which means there's a high chance they'll be able to get their job back. I'll give you a perfect example. Again, is in the George Floyd killing by the Minneapolis police officer. The police chief immediately fired the four officers who were caught on video um, participating in Mr. Floyd's death. Those of us who paid close attention uh, to union contracts over the course of years know that it's entirely possible that th those officers are going to be reinstated and get their jobs back. Why? Because the union contracts include provisions that allow officers to go through an arbitration process. So that means that the police chief doesn't have the final say over the firing of officers, which in some cases is a good thing. I mean, that's a traditional provision within a union contract that a lot of laborers are able to then go for arbitration. But what's different, though, is because of this hero narrative that we've had for so long, boards have been very reluctant to punish officers. In fact, Melissa says very few investigations seem to result in a finding of misconduct against a police officer. For example, in the city of Chicago, um, my colleagues and I had run a data analysis of all of the records that we could find uh, about officer complaints. And we found that from the mid-60s through 2015, you know, we looked at thousands upon, quite literally hundreds of thousands of complaints, and we found that 90% of them resulted in no discipline whatsoever. In the city of Minneapolis, which we're looking at, you know, obviously because of the George Floyd uh, case, um, the records indicate there that about 1% of police officers have faced any sort of discipline. Right. And there needs to be more transparency with the police. I mean, the problem is, like I saw spray painted across the store yesterday, is who, if, if a policeman murders, who do you call? And it's like the problem is, is the union. And I'm a big union guy. I've been in a union. Same here. Was in a union, but the policeman's union is not allowing there to be internal investigations, and they're not taking them seriously, and they're stonewalling, and they're and so there there has to be a new way of investigating police when when these things happen because this one has gotten a lot of publicity. And people are still not happy with the way it's being handled. How about the ones that get no publicity? Which they is... They quietly do whatever the fuck they want. 
And one of the things I think a lot of elected officials find when they get into uh, state and municipal positions of authority in the United States is that they, they simply can't govern without the police unions. Uh, a lot of politicians in places like New York, they get elected promising police reform, but they almost instantaneously change course after election. I think the current mayor of New York, Bill de Blasi, was a, is a great example. He ran as, as an opponent of this kind of policing, and almost immediately his first commissioner was Bill Bratton, who was one of the fathers of broken windows policing uh, in this country. So it, yes, it, as soon as people get into office, they immediately start deferring to these police unions. Lane asked whether they should roll Floyd on his side. No, staying put where we got him, Chauvin allegedly replied. I'm worried about excited delirium or whatever, Lane said. That's why we have him on his stomach, Chauvin said. Okay, you might go, hang on. First of all, why'd they put that in but didn't put in him saying, don't kill me and I'm about to die. But what's this excited delirium? What's that all about? Okay, well, I looked that up. All right, what, that, what that's all about is, uh, according to the National Institute of Health, excited or agitated delirium is characterized by agitation, aggression, acute distress, and sudden death, often in the pre-hospital care setting. It is typically associated with the use of drugs that alter dopamine processing, hypothermia, and most notably, sometimes with death of the affected person in the custody of law enforcement. Subjects typically die from cardiopulmonary arrest, although the cause is debated. You might recall cardiopulmonary arrest is what he is now being found mm. That, that killed him, right? Yes. And as I said, this typically happens, affects people in the custody of law enforcement. Turns out that's the go-to excuse that cops use when they kill people. Ah. They say, ah, actually, he had excited delirium and he just flipped out and he had just an instant heart attack because he was freaking out and because he had underlying conditions and he was on some kind of drug. Do you remember in that report they said, they said yes. toxicology, they're still waiting to see if he's on some kind of drug? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're teeing him up for the excited delirium yes. defense, right? Which means that the cop gets off, even though it looks like for all the world, He's killed this guy. They go, oh, actually, excited delirium. He couldn't have known. So you can see the attempt to tee up in the report right now. And I'm not saying that that's going to work. Yeah. But you can see whoever typed that up was trying to give the cop that out. That's one thing about Dirty Harry Minute. They don't play any favorites. The podcast that isn't pussyfooting around about Dirty Harry. The initial charging document of the medical examiner said that there was no evidence of asphyxiation. (laughs) Um, There's no physical findings that support a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. Mr. Floyd had underlying health conditions, including coronary artery disease and hypertensive heart disease. And this is, you know, I think corrupt. And in fact, the family hired its own private coroner who said, no, of course, it was asphyxiation. And shortly, two days later, of course, the official coroner's report came out saying, yes, he was strangled. But I think that in the absence of that hypervisibility captured on camera, um, the report from the initial report is really the, 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 the what, what I'm referring to as a, almost a, a kind of the, the narrative that gets hidden over and over and over again. Um, which is the cooperation of not just the police, but of prosecutors and of coroners who write out um, the agency of state actors like police. 
Talking to uh, Alex Vitale, I tried to sort of find something to cheer myself up and I asked him how he felt about the various images of many cops taking the knee, you know, and in fact mm-hmm. showing sympathy to the demonstrators. Yes. Alex wouldn't have a bar of it. He thought that was, uh, you know, just superficial PR. But do you see it as, uh, as some sign of hope? I mean, I think that this, you know, it, it is why it is so important to really not divide this into the flipped switch of either or. It is, you know, it is either people are criminalized or they are heroic. The police are all bad or they're all good. Um, there is such, this is such a nuanced uh, moment. And police departments have always been composed of in the majority of people who are public servants and take that very, very seriously. They take that as a responsibility. Um, but there, but, but the, the focus of these demonstrations are that minority, and I think it is generally a minority, um, in, uh, you know, who, whose bad behavior is not just captured, is not just inflicted upon certain populations, but is then in an entire system of, of refusal to remediate. And that involves a condemnation of prosecu- prosecutors, um, of jurors as acculturated to simply not being able to see the possibility of anything other than fearing black bodies. It's a much broader cultural problem than simply saying, you know, we have a problem with bad cops because we do have good cops. Do you have any idea how hard it is to prosecute a cop? So we've seen days and days of unrest. We're at a week now. How much longer can this go on for? And what's the end goal? What's the aim here? Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that we have to think about is that there's been protests in 75 cities. Close to 40 cities have called for curfews. Um, Many, many protests have not been violent. They've been peaceful protests. But the media has actually focused on the violence uh, much of the violence has actually been police violence, police in New York City uh, driving uh, cruisers <laughs> into peaceful demonstrators, police in Atlanta who since been fired, um, um, brutalizing a couple unarmed in their SUV who was trying to leave a demonstration. So we've seen really this has been a tipping point to see that we have over incarcerated the United States of America. We have too much law enforcement. We have too much resources that are being taken away from poor segregated communities um, to be punished and contained by law enforcement. And it was in the midst of all this that in the 1990s, more than 20 U.S. states and the federal government under Bill Clinton introduced so-called three strikes laws. When you commit a third violent crime, you will be put away and put away for good. Three strikes and you are out. But as it turned out, California's three strikes law was one of the harshest. Nonviolent or even minor third offences could trigger a life sentence. There were people sentenced to life in prison for stealing a slice of pizza, taking a dollar's worth of change from a car or shoplifting some children's shoes. Five years ago, in the wake of the police murders of Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and Eric Garner, the American public and African Americans in particular were told, don't worry. Don't worry, we're going to fix this. 
The Obama administration implemented a whole series of reform initiatives through its Justice Department. Local police chiefs and mayors said, don't worry, we're going to give the police de-escalation training. We're going to give them implicit bias training. We're going to give them body cameras, and this is going to fix the problem. And a whole industry of consultants and high-paid uh, you know, academic trainers and whatnot uh, helped facilitate this idea that policing could just be fixed with a few training programs. Was, was there ever a moment, Alex, where you shared that optimism? Not really. I mean, I guess there was a moment when I first started doing this work, actually now almost 30 years ago, uh, dealing with the policing of homeless people. And I did engage in some efforts to try to do training of police and to raise awareness. But I was quickly disabused of that idea as I saw that the police were not engaged so much in individual acts of misconduct as they were enforcing a set of laws created by the local government that were inherently harmful, even when properly executed. Now, in this article recently, you wrote that the kind of high engagement policing we see on the streets of America can be traced back in part to a criminologist called George Kelling and a theory called broken windows. Um, how, How do you see that theory? It goes back to academic theories that suggest that people, first of all, feel safer when they do not see what they call the visible signs of disorder in their neighborhoods. So if they don't see litter or graffiti or public drunkenness. And also there are theories uh, that were espoused by people like uh, the, the academic from Stanford, Philip Zimbardo, that suggested that for instance, if you have a home or, or a car that has a broken window, uh, if you leave the window broken, then soon all the windows will be broken. And that's what the broken windows theory is. Mm. And this led to a revolution in policing that stopped focusing on the literal violations of the law and instead told police officers to focus on what they called order maintenance, which was uh, what they called quality of life arrests. So they wanted they wanted to aggressively engage the public on the smallest possible kinds of offenses, uh, jumping turnstiles, public urination, drinking out of an open container, things like that. And so they went from uh, arresting people only for serious crimes or, or, or focusing on that to uh, trying to engage people uh, far more often for, for more minor offenses. Now, you obviously feel that it became quite a lot more malign in the way it was applied uh, to the maintenance of order. Yeah, and you're right. And there were some initial successes that were very famous here in the United States. I think the, probably the most celebrated one was the the cleaning up of the New York City subways. Uh, for years and years and years, police focused on this idea that um, they had to just paint over the graffiti in the subways and they would paint over it every day and the people would go and do graffiti the next day and they would have to repaint them over and over and over again. Uh, And they arrested minor offenders in the subways. And after, you know, a period of years, the New York City subways, which were notoriously unsafe, actually became safer. And this, this led to widespread acceptance of these ideas. The problem was that these high engagement strategies depended upon this idea 
that police didn't have time to establish traditional probable cause. They had to make snap judgments about who, which kinds of people um, were worth putting up against the wall and searching uh, or arresting for minor offenses. And it soon became clear that they were doing that more in minority neighborhoods, far more than they were in white neighborhoods. And this led to some of the discrepancies we're seeing today. And you're saying that it, it has had all these unintended consequences, which have just grown and grown, along with, I noticed Bloomberg reporting just today, that the cost of policing in the US has almost tripled from $42 billion US in 77 to 114 in 2017, even even though crime rates have invariably been going down. Yes, the crime rates have been uh, plummeting in the United States since uh, 1991 or 1992, uh, but the prison population has roughly doubled since then. It's actually uh, quadrupled since the 1980 or 1981. Uh, and the costs, this is tied to a lot of things. It's it's tied to the, to the militarization of uh, weapons that the police departments use. It's tied to the tell fact me, that- Tell me more about that, please. In local police departments, they were suddenly armed with tanks and automatic uh, rifles and Kevlar vests and all the same kinds of equipment that they would use in foreign military occupations, which was ironic because um, they started to behave like uh, occupiers in a lot of these neighborhoods. Uh, so that was a big part of it. And another part of it was that they were just putting more police on the streets because they needed to to keep up these the pace of these arrests and stops and searches. Let, let me ask you this. How successful was the diversification? program? Well, n not, not at all. And in fact, we, we have a large body of research in the United States that shows that the race of the officer has no impact on the way that policing services are delivered in any meaningful sense. And this has been known for a long period of time. Now, th and that, it's just that, any, that simple yeah. point will take the breath away from many of the people listening to us. It's really a challenging idea, right, because it does seem to be inappropriate to have a police force that does not mirror the demographics of the community. And this was, of course, a major complaint in Ferguson in the wake of the Mike Brown killing. But we find that the institutional imperatives under which individual op officers operate outweigh any feelings they may have individually about how to approach things. Sometimes this is driven by things like performance quotas, but more importantly, the, the mission that the police has been given. You know, when the police are told, as they are in the United States, to wage a war on crime, a war on drugs, a war on gang, a war on immigrants, a war on terror, you know, they are going to approach the public in this confrontational way. And uh, in some ways, African-American officers are often under pressure to prove that they will stick to the program and not be, you know, too accommodating to people. Everybody you know, was supporting this idea that we could fix policing through these superficial adjustments without ever interrogating the bigger questions of why we've turned every social problem in the United States over to the police to manage and how that's really driving tens of millions of negative punitive interactions between police and especially, you know, low-income communities and communities of color. Alex, I'm of an age that, to remember a time when our police were not armed, like the British police at the time. 
These days, of course, they waddle around heavily burdened with everything up to uh, missile launchers. In fact, your police seem to be indistinguishable from military organisations. Surely the militarisation of your police is one of the major problems. Well, yes, it's not just the hardware, though. It's it's also uh, an issue of training and an issue of mission. And and the irony is right. Our military has become more like a police force in many places, such as the Middle East, while our police are becoming increasingly militarized. And I think this is really a political problem at the federal, state, and local level of federal of politicians saying. You know, we're just going to keep turning problems over to the police. And when they have difficulty, we're going to just give them more hardware and also more legal freedom to act in these aggressive and confrontational ways. I'm finding really strange the way the police are targeting the media. I don't know what they are doing because that's... You don't know what they're doing? Seriously? Why? How is it going to look good for the police in a PR war? to punch out a camera. Like, you can't get more... I mean, I know they're punching yeah. out Sunrise, so, so they might win some support there. But Fuck you, cash cow. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, but you can't get more dramatic than punching a camera. Like, cause it's, yeah. It looks really hardcore. Even if it's a little tap, it looks so hardcore. Mm. What are they doing? I understand well, you're trying to get rid of... Yes. Get rid of the cameras, but you don't need to mm. punch them in the face or shoot them with with, with rubber bullets to get yeah. them to go. Well, I think that indicates the level of training that's gone on here, uh, right? Not a lot uh, of training in mm. crisis management, de-escalation, ordinary relations with other human beings. <laughs> the training has clearly emphasised how to make your use of force as uh, physically effective as possible mm. rather than on how to deal with situations like this. The police have made a major factor in the escalation of violence from the beginning. Well, they did. They did start off. Yeah. On day one, when the, when the, when there yes. wasn't any rioting happening, it was just protesting happening, no. they didn't meet the protesters in riot gear. Yes, yeah, they, they met the protesters that. in yeah. riot gear. There was tear gas and rubber bullets, at least by day two, I don't, mm. maybe even used earlier. Mm. Now, when you meet the protesters dressed like a, you know, Robocop outfit, mm. right, dressed in surplus gear from Iraq and Vietnam... Everyone wearing dark glasses and dark clothing that's designed to make them as unidentifiable as possible, Mm. just being very, very threatening and, you know, backed by armoured vehicles and things. You are asking for a riot. People's inhibitions against violence and against mayhem are going to be pretty weakened, pretty severely weakened, when they're being charged at by cops for no reason. If you're not good at your job then it's the employer's job to fire you because what's the point of having someone who's not doing their job? There shouldn't be any kind of subculture that sticks together to keep that person employed if they're not doing their job. Just because 80s movies always showed renegade cops doing things on their own and against the book doesn't mean reality reflects that in any way. Maybe this line of work isn't for you. Maybe you just need to work on yourself for a change. If you think anyone should be harmed, tortured, emotionally or physically abused, or even violently killed, if you really believe in your heart and heart, this is okay. 
Well, then I want to hear your explanation that goes a little bit further than the pseudo-patriotism that you align yourself to. We've had uh, hundreds of deaths in police custody here with our Indigenous people. And really, yes. I can't think of more than of, of any case where anyone has been held legally responsible for that. And that's also the sad <laughs> history in your country. Very, very few people, cops, yes. have, ever, have ever received uh, appropriate sentences. In Australia, there's a long, well-documented history of members of the Indigenous community being the victims of police violence, Indigenous deaths in custody... And just generally, Indigenous people here being dramatically overrepresented at every step of the justice system, including prisons. As the, the region commander here, am I concerned about what I've seen in that footage? Absolutely, I am concerned. But I'm equally concerned about others who may use this footage to inflame it and turn it into something that's not. Right, and the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Mick Fuller, has his own take too. Officer in question has been in the police force around three and a half years and he's got a clean history and by all accounts he's a good police officer and you would have to say he's had a bad day. And, and I'm sure most of the community wouldn't want to see someone who's made a mistake sacked after making such a commitment to the community. If I can just take you back just to the, the details that we can see in the video, I mean, this, this kind of... Uh, this kind of interaction, like it seems to all happen quite quickly. You know, there is, there's this verbal, uh, I guess, a threat of violence. There's like offensive language, as you said. And then seconds later, there's this leg sweep maneuver. I mean, this would be assault, right? If, if the, this would like, this is assault, um, but for the fact that the, um, the man is the police officer in this, in this case. I mean, how, how much violence are police officers legally permitted to, to use under our, under the legislation? Well, in New South Wales, the law that governs policing is called the Law Enforcement Powers and Responsibilities Act, and it's very similar to other state laws across Australia in that police have uh, the right in under statute to use force. So it's lawful for a police officer, but only if they're exercising a power or a function in law um, in relation to a person or, or, you know, another kind of function, uh, that they can use such force as is reasonably necessary to underdo that function. And I think because there's a purported arrest here and there's really, you know, big questions around arrest for what. So, you know, police have a lot of discretion. You know, the most kind of capable professional police officers, you know, deal with um being taunted, you know, by teenagers all the time and they don't purport to arrest them uh, for offensive language. And, in fact, there's legislation that says for young people you've got to, well, firstly, there have to be alternatives to arrest and particularly for young people you've, you've got to engage in diversion and not unnecessarily engage them in the criminal justice system. So police always have choices. But there's a specific provision in the law that says that police can use force, reasonable force, in making an arrest. So they can use whatever force, again, that's reasonably necessary to make an arrest or to prevent the escape of a person after the arrest. And on top of that, Indigenous Australians have been making a case for a long time that they specifically are subject to a phenomenon called over-policing. Examples of over-policing, particularly for First Nations people, 
might be the overrepresentation uh, in stop and search statistics. Other examples of over-policing in this country um, would certainly uh, include uh, the use of minor uh, arrest for minor offences. Uh, we might see um, forms of unnecessary charging uh, around you know, encounters where there's unnecessary conflict between police and the person uh, being engaged with and that leading to charges of uh, resist arrest or obstruct police. So there's ways in which the law is used as a form of, of over-policing. It sort of snowballs, doesn't it? If you swear at a police officer and then you resist arrest, then you're sort of clocking up the offences just all, over the, all around the one incident. So in about um, 2008, a group of mainly African-Australian young men took Victoria Police to the federal court because they alleged that they were being targeted um, by police because of the colour of their skin. And young African men in this particular area, Flemington, Kensington, North Melbourne, in the years in question, have been stopped and searched two and a half times more than their population would suggest should be the case. And piloting programs, you know, one of them was a ticketing program. So essentially police would issue you with a ticket and they would give you the reason for why they've stopped you. And the idea is that, you know, if you're being stopped simply because of how you look, you will probably accumulate a large number of these tickets in the course of, of, of a period of time. But that trial was sort of stopped and they've now replaced it with like a business card system. So we're currently in what the report described as phase two. And again, it's very broad in the description of some of the policies that they're implementing. My black son, when he was in high school, had been approached by the police. It happened twice. He's on his way to the bus stop. And because he fit a description, it actually happened in front of me one day. We're coming out of my own house early in the morning and the police pulls both of us. We didn't even get to the car. We're coming off the porch and they're grabbing my son from the porch, telling him that, you know, there was just a shooting and he it was some kids and he fits the description. How does he fit the description? How? Because he's black, he fits the description. Sandila, can you tell me more about predictive policing? What is it and what is the effect of it? So so-called predictive policing uses new technologies such as facial recognition, video surveillance systems, social media to monitor and then collect and analyse this data and put it in a system that the algorithms determine whether or not an individual is likely to commit crime and in which locations these individuals might be. So it sort of predicts the probability of someone to um, re-offend. So it's specifically useful when it comes to recidivism or re-offending in many ways. And so one of the criticisms of the so-called predictive policing is that it tends to amplify racial bias. And these are some of the concerns that people that work in this area have, and they'd like to see greater transparency around how these tools are used. Mm. And can you tell me more about how these technologies and tools that you're describing are being used by police in Australia? The New South Wales Police Watchdog, the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission, decided to investigate, you know, this... It's called a Suspect Targeting Management Plan, or STMP, and it's sort of applied as... They call it the Intelligence-Led Proactive Policing Policy, 
And apparently it's been in operation by the New South Wales Police Force for at least two decades. And it's a preemptive tool to stop reoffending or to limit and minimise reoffending. And so the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission, or LEC, investigated this. And in January this year, they handed down their findings and they found that young people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds were disproportionately selected by this STMP targeting program. Australia, police officers there have been accused of racial bias against Aboriginal children under a repeat offender monitoring scheme. Last month, there were... Some of the children who'd been targeted previously hadn't had any offences recorded. How is it that STMP identifies more than 50% as suspects being Aboriginal when the population across the board in New South Wales of Aboriginal people is 2.5%. How is it? The youngest person that was targeted through this STMP program was a nine-year-old Aboriginal boy from rural New South Wales. And despite the fact that he had no record of being charged for crimes prior to being targeted by this system, when he was added to the system, he was charged, I think, something like 90 times, um, according to this uh, LEC investigation. This entire program, the Suspect Target Management Plan, is part of the problem, isn't it? I, I would say that it is part of the problem, but it's part of the solution as well. Police targeting children 9, 10, 11, all the way through very young, tender years, and determining that that they are going to be repeat offenders in the future. So therefore, the best way to actually tackle this was to over-police them. As she said, it just supports all these arguments that Aboriginal communities have been making for years, for decades. How do you think other police forces, whether it's in the United States, whether it's across the world, because of course we've seen protests across the world, how do you think they can learn from what happened to you in Flint in Michigan? Well, I can speak on law enforcement because it's what I've done my whole adult life. And law enforcement and police around the world have many times created their own psychological barrier for people not to cross over. We are expected to be experts in almost every field, whether you have one month on the job or 30 years. And we are very close when it comes to communication. Law enforcement many times is seen as very militant and authoritarian, and, and rightly so. But we also have to remember the human side. Those behind the helmets and the batons and the shields and in patrol cars, their moms and dads and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. But we see so much trauma. We deal with so many horrific situations that there's a natural callus that builds up. And I would ask my brothers and sisters around the world not to forget the human factor of why we took an oath and why we commit every day to go there and protect and serve. And so when we read that uh, the majority of Minneapolis City Council is pledging to dismantle the local police department in light of George Floyd's death last month, that is obviously going to be a hugely popular decision with a lot of people. But practically... How easy is that to do, to dismantle an entire police force and rebuild? Well, I support police agencies that have been historically shown to see it as ineffective, agencies that have lost faith with their community and their community with them, that that is not the, the best way to police. And we have in our office nine contracts with other municipalities 
that had police protection that disbanded and we now are their police agency. So when you hear about defunding police, you can't defund law and order and you can't defund police protection, but you can defund ineffective police leadership, incompetent police leadership and police agencies that have lost faith with their community. You need law and order, but fund the police that are there, that have a heart for the people, that have true leadership in the policing world, that understand their communities. It's, it's not a new concept, but it's clear that the people of Minneapolis have lost faith in their police department. But that doesn't mean that they don't need law and order. They need somebody with law and order and a big heart. Sheriff Chris Swanson from Flint, Michigan. It is so about trust. You know, I explained to them that we don't even have a relationship with the police officers anymore. They don't know anybody's name in the neighborhood. They don't talk to Mrs. So-and-so around the corner. They don't go play basketball with the kids in in the neighborhoods. It has gone from protecting and serving to just policing. It's also restoked Black Lives Matter protests, which at this point have involved millions of Americans and to, I think, the astonishment of everyone um, are are having immediate effect. You have a number of cities that are looking, including my own here in New Haven, that are looking to re-channel police funding into social services and other frontline safety net issues. You have the state of New York uh, abruptly stood up to the police unions and has banned chokeholds by police. A number of other reforms that have, you know, you could wait 10 years, 25 years, fight and never get anywhere, have suddenly gone through uh, legislatures and, and city councils. I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers military personnel, and law enforcement officers to stop the rioting, looting, vandalism, assaults, and the wanton destruction of property. Your country is going through one of its darkest stages. My country and my constitution uh, both are facing probably the greatest challenge of uh, certainly my adult lifetime. You know, we had... Last night in front of the White House, military police flashbangs and tear gas uh, and horses turned on entirely peaceful protesters uh, in the backdrop of a president giving a chest-thumping denunciation of the nation's governors for being a bunch of wimps. should have called SWAT. And the sort of legal jurisdiction of Washington is a little bit unique in the United States. But the reality is that um, with this huge national upheaval, both of revulsion at the death of Mr. Floyd in Minneapolis, captured on video, and I think the pent-up rage in a generation of young people, uh, at four years of unbounded presidential abuses and impunity, which um, 
we grown-ups in the room have done very little to rein in, frankly. So what these theorists and historians conclude, like Paxton, is that fascism is not a set of ideas, a set of ideologies or principles. It is what you do. And Donald Trump's behavior are just some of the many, many, many ways in which we could say that his political actions are fascist. And that's why I say that there's, I, I, to make a distinction between whether he's a fascist in his heart or in his mind, um, if he's a fascist in his actions, as I say in the essay that you uh, mentioned, then, which he demonstrably is, then in my view, it is time to start uh, calling him uh, what, what that is. Do you think Trump is aware that of the fascist rhetoric he employs, or is it just his own fuzziness? I think we could get ourselves into a lot of trouble trying to figure out what Trump is aware of uh, at the moment. Whatever he was once aware of, he's clearly less aware of it on a daily basis. And I say that not in a flippant way or to make light of cognitive decline. But, you know, I think we all need to tell the truth. And there's a kind of emperor's no clothes here phenomenon where everybody doesn't want to say what everybody can clearly see, which is that his whatever his mental faculties once were, and they were never great, they are degenerating before our eyes. And so in terms of, you know, Again, does he have some organized, uh, is he masterminding a, a fascist coup? No, he is not. Are people around him? Uh, possibly. Are they using him as a useful idiot? Definitely. Um, but is he aware of the fascistic nature of what he's doing? Is he aware of the racist aspect of what he's doing? Of course he is. It's way too uh, a patterned to be a coincidence. And the thing is, is it's way too consistent with the way it's been used in American history to be a coincidence, starting with that slogan, America First, which you know, was the, the slogan that Charles Lindbergh used. It, go, it actually goes back further in American history. And every one of Trump's administrative policy decisions has been consistent with the old meanings of America first and with many others of these. Uh, and, and again, those that, that slogan was one that was taken up by self-styled, self-identified American fascist groups in the 1930s. And that just can't be a coincidence. When the president declares voting an honour, rather than a right, and jokes about becoming president for life, and when the government makes efforts to add new categories of ethnic identity to the census for the first time in the nation's history, well, you've got trouble. His campaign is based on the um, agitation of a minority of voters and the demoralization of a majority. His whole you know, division have been, has been his political strategy and, and frankly, the direct invocation of violence. I mean, let's remember that his campaign really took off with the physical attack on a journalist, with the physical ejection in 2016 of Jorge Ramos, a uh, Univision correspondent who was asking too many questions at a Trump press conference and the president had him thrown out of the room physically. There's a direct line connecting that 2016 attack on Jorge Ramos to the uh, impunity that police have felt over the last week around the country in attacking journalists covering these protests, something we also have, have not seen at such a high level. When the looting starts, the shooting the starts, shooting starts. Yeah. and we talked about that last week. Just before his, his walk back. Yeah, so Twitter <laughs> put a notice on that saying that yeah. violates yeah. community standards about glorifying violence. Yes. Trump said, oh, no, I didn't mean, yeah. you know, we're going to shoot looters. I meant, yeah. you know. They just get shot sometimes. That's well, bad. That's yeah, bad. And also suggesting that looters would be doing the shooting, which notably mm. has not 
been happening. Mm. Also, Fox News has been saying to white suburbanites there are going to be armed young men coming into your suburbs with guns. It's actually astounding now I think about it. There hasn't been any guns. No, it's this None. is this is all just this is just projective fantasies, right? So and that, you know, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, that that was not some sort of innocent term. Trump, not the world's not the world's biggest reader. No. <laughs> he wouldn't necessarily know the provision of something. Maybe he just heard the phrase and he had no idea where it came from. How do you know that he knew where it came from? And and what and especially people like Trump, he, he says some dumb shit sometimes. And yeah, you just yeah. You, you don't know where it comes from. But in this case, I'm not giving him benefit of the doubt. No. The reason why is because if there's one president that yeah. Trump is obsessed with, it's Richard Nixon. Yes, exactly. He is absolutely obsessed with Richard Nixon. So much of his of his rhetoric comes directly from Richard oh, Nixon. Especially this week. <laughs> He's just been tweeting out literally Nixon phrases. So yeah. law and order, exclamation yeah. mark. Silent majority, exclamation the mark. The enemy, the people thing. That's Richard Nixon as Someone well. pointed out on Twitter, it's... It's as if someone has told him, oh, look, these phrases worked for Richard Nixon, mm. and now he thinks that they're like Harry Potter magic spells. <laughs> he was so, so much into this right period. He talks about oh, it yeah. so much, this 967, 68 period. Yeah, yeah. So I he just he may not be a great reader, but that kind of um, – Idiotic rhyming. Uh, well, that's the thing. That's that's exactly his he, kind he of thing. He loves a turn of phrase. When the looting starts, yeah. the shooting starts. He, he loves a turn of phrase. You know, that's a kind of thing that would you, get straight through. Exa- and you know that old anyway. guys on golf courses in Florida have been saying this to each other for years. This is another yeah. major source of where Trump gets things from. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so and, 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 I'm not giving a down. Finally, okay, this is not like... There is no esoteric meaning to when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Right? The meaning of that is as clear as it gets. Yeah. I, I should say, by the way, while we're talking about this, um, just yeah, yeah. in case you're interested, because, um, yeah, I'm, I'm into the law, <laughs> uh, that would be against the Fourth Amendment. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. Yes. Because it's excessive punishment. It has, yes, absolutely. So, yeah, so yeah. you should say, but having said that, I should also point out that Trump is not the first person to to think of this. In fact, during... No, of course he's not the first person to think of this. No, but I was going to say, during Hurricane Katrina, yeah. there was a shoot-to-kill order for losers instituted by the government. Right, yes. Which is, which is an interesting part of American history. In the courtroom of honour, the judge pounded his gavel show that all's equal and that the courts are on the level and that the strings in the books ain't pulled and persuaded and that even the nobles get properly handled once that the cops have chased after and caught them and that the ladder of law has no top and no bottom stared at the person who killed for no reason who just happened to be feeling that way without warning And he spoke through his cloak most deep and distinguished And handed out strongly for penalty and repentance Williams and Zanger with a six-month sentence Ah, but you who fell I 
classifies discreet and criticizes our fears. Bury the rain deep in your face. For now's the time for your tears. 